what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor Guerra. Plan for today is we've got Charles Huff. He's now the head coach at Marshall. You might know him as the number one recruiter in the nation in the 2021 class, 24-7 sports. Just gave him that title. He actually spent the last two years on Saban staff at Alabama. He's got a really, really cool background. I, I, I love it when people that I feel like are relatively close to my age get these opportunities. So it was fun to be able to talk about all of that with him and on a variety of things. Also, credit to me for only bringing up We Are Marshall one time. I actually own that movie on DVD. Will, does anyone buy DVDs anymore? Um, I sure don't. Yeah, it's I do the, like the $5 target you know when you're in the back of target and there's like everyone every time i go into target i have to pop into the back and sometimes you'll get like a 10 things i hate about you which i get that's on tv all the time but it's nice to be able to just have the five dollar dvd so i do that and then that's pretty much the only time i buy dvds but i was saying the other day i was saying to lauren i'm like wait we have a really really good dvd collection that's totally not going to be a thing like you know when you're younger you had that friend who had every single movie ever made on VHS. You still know like what that house is, like our our relative age range. We're gonna be that house that has all of those DVDs and people are gonna look at it like, all right, well, that's, that's useless. So looking forward to that. Uh, we're not talking DVDs today though. Um, I've your also kids got are gonna be thoughts. like, your kids are gonna be like, oh, we, he has all these DVDs, but his dad has takes on all of them. We just, he won't stop yes. talking during the DVDs. Yep. You are exactly right. Big IMDb during the movie type guy. That's that's me for sure. I've uh, I've also got some thoughts about how the draft illustrates the SEC's drastic philosophical change the last decade plus. Something I think that we need to remember as we talk about modern offense. We're going to close with something in figuring out that I have thought about for years, and we I know we're going to have a lot of opinions on that, but. Before we do all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. It is free and comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football. Yep, that's the website address. Go to your internet browser and punch in saturday.football. It's free. You can unsubscribe if you don't like it at any time, but if you're like me and you love college football, I'm sure that you will love it. Check it out. Go to saturday.football and add your email address today. Okay, the most clear evidence of the SEC's transformation. You can look at a lot of things. You can look at some of the passing numbers over the course of the last decade or so. You can look at the fact that Alabama just put up its two best offenses in school history, a variety of things. LSU actually getting in the 21st century Look at mock drafts. I make fun of them all the time, but let's be honest. I, I find them super interesting. Will, are you a, a big mock draft guy? Um, being a Saints fan, you know, all mock drafts do is hurt me because we just take interior linemen. So I like to pretend <laughs> there are no exciting players at all, and that's how I get through the draft. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's perfectly fair. I, I take them for what they are. A year out, the way-too-early mocks, they're really, really funny. I've, I've said this before. Nick Fitzgerald and Mitch Leidner as round one guys, just fantastic. That just makes me smile every time I see that. Those are the ones where you can tell that the, the draft analysts have only watched like one game because they've been evaluating all these other guys, and these come out the day after the draft. But when the season's in the books, it's a different story with the mock drafts. Mel Kuyper Jr., a.k.a. Mr. Pumpkin Pie, he had his first mock come out the other day. Seven of his first eight picks were quarterbacks and receivers. More specifically, three of his top six overall were SEC receivers. He had Devontae Smith at number two, Jamar Chase at number three, and Jalen Waddell at number six. Is that going to happen? Eh, probably not, but it certainly could. Those guys, at the very least, are first-round locks. It'll be the second consecutive year in which at least three SEC receivers come off the board in round one. So go back to when the draft was reduced to eight rounds in 1993. From 1993 to 2019, 2007 was the only draft that had three first-round receivers from the SEC. Will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an offer to you. I'm going to give you $5 for every one of the receivers that came off the board from the SEC in the first round in 2007. Okay, 2007... I remember this. Okay, so I know Dwayne Bowe and... That's five bucks. Buster Davis. That's ten bucks. And that's the end of my list. Okay, that's that's still a solid payday. Robert Meacham, last one mm. for you. All three of those guys 
were between picks 23 and the end of the first round. Last year, the SEC had those three first-round receivers, Ruggs, Judy, and my guy, Justin Jefferson. They were all, ironically enough, picked in the top 22. In terms of elite receiver talent, it's the best that the SEC has ever had at the top of the draft. And it looks like it's about to be topped by this 2021 class. I probably should have finished talking about Kuiper's mock because he also had Kadarius Toney at 19 and he had Terrace Marshall at 27. Oh, and just in case that wasn't enough, he had Kyle Pitts at, at 11. I don't think Kyle Pitts is getting out of the top 10. I think it's more likely that he's the highest drafted tight end since Vernon Davis went number six overall back in 2006. But Kuiper had five SEC receivers off the board in round one. If you include Kyle Pitts and then include Mac Jones, Seven of the 32 picks that Kuiper had were SEC players who either threw or caught passes. That's excluding running backs. Before you tell me that Kuiper is just some sort of SEC homer, look around. Two guys that we've interviewed on this podcast before, Matt Miller, his last Bleacher Report mock draft had seven such players from the SEC. That's SEC players who threw or caught passes. Pro football folks is Mike Renner. We've had him on the podcast before as well. He had that number at six. A year ago, that number was five, including Burrow and Tua. Even if that number just repeats and it's Chase, Smith, Waddle, Pitts, and Jones coming off the board in round one, think about this. From 1990 to 2019, the SEC only had one year with more than three first rounders who threw slash caught passes. Again, that's combining quarterbacks, receivers, and tight ends. In the 1990s, that total number for the decade was 10. In the 2000s, that total number was 16. In the 2010s, that number was 12. That's it. That's an average of 1.2 per year. Only three times did the SEC have multiple players come off the board in that decade. Just as many times, they had zero such players drafted from the SEC, like quarterbacks, receivers, tight ends. If the SEC has seven such players come off the board in round one, as Mel Kuyper projects, That'll give the SEC 12 such players in the 2020s. By the way, just in case you forgot, I know it's been a long decade, but we're only two years into this decade. Two years, that's it. <laughs> That'd be an average of six per year. The last three decades, the, av the average for the SEC in that department was one, 1 1.6, and 1.2. I know, it's a really small sample size, but stay with me on this. How many SEC quarterbacks were drafted in round one in the 2010s? Three. How many SEC quarterbacks in round one in the 2020s if Mac Jones is indeed a first-round pick as everyone is projecting right now? Three. How many SEC receivers were drafted in round one of the 2010s decade? Seven. How many SEC receivers will be drafted in round one of the 2020s if Kuiper's mock holds? That number will already be at eight. It'll already surpass the entire decade. Have I said that we're only two years into this decade? Because we are. The SEC has totally shifted its offensive approach in that regard. It's so different now that even the defensive-minded head coaches preach this new style of offense. Look at the four defensive-minded head coaches left in the SEC. Mark Stoops, what did he just do? He hired Liam Cohen to run Sean McVay's style of offense. It's at least going to have some principles of that. Clark Lee, new Vanderbilt coach, he just hired David Rye. He's a wide receivers coach with the Arizona Cardinals. That means he breathed the same air as Cliff Kingsbury. Actually, was you know kind of his left-hand guy, right-hand guy. I think he's a lefty, maybe, back at Texas Tech 2013. But Kingsbury, friend of Sean McVay, you get the whole deal. Kirby Smart, what did he do last year? He hired Todd Munkin. Munkin, of course, has air raid principles. Georgia goes through arguably its biggest offensive transformation of the 21st century. We'll see that probably even more this year with JT Daniels because of his ability to stretch the field. And everybody knows that Saban modernized his offense with Kiffin back in 2014. Mari Cooper, perfect, perfect test sample for this. I would love to have three years of Amari Cooper in Kiffin's offense instead of one. Will, let's do something real quick. Three receivers that you would love to see in modern day SEC. And let's just assume for argument's sake that we're talking about them playing with the same quarterback and it's a quarterback who can move a little bit and can make all the throws because I think Odell and Julio have to be the first two names that come to mind, right? Um, I'd say AJ Green. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. He got to play with Matt Stafford though. I mean, he did get to play with a guy who could stretch the field and they, they did make that a big part of their offense as well. That's AJ Green is definitely a good one as opposed to, you know, obviously Georgia was, was very traditional in its style back then. 
Odell, though, at least played with Cam Cameron's offense that threw the ball in 2013. That's what I thought. And then I went back and I looked it up. You're going to love this. That 2013 LSU team, which you know we did on a previous episode of It Just Meant More, that, that game against Georgia where Aaron Murray came back and it was probably the biggest win he had of his college career. That 2013 LSU team that we heard about, oh, they're throwing the ball with Cam Cameron, all of a sudden, they averaged 25.1 pass attempts per game. In 2020... There were 110 teams with more passes per game. That includes 13 of 14 from the SEC. Poor Julio. Julio, man. He had John Parker Wilson and Greg McElroy. They averaged seven yards attempt. They also never averaged more than 27.8 pass attempts per game. That barely would have cracked the top 100 in FBS in 2020. Those two are so un- unbelievably obvious. I think anyone from LSU... I mean, probably a little too obvious. Even like a DJ Chark would be probably a good one, right? I mean, we had that DJ dude Chark running, was running jet sweeps like ten times a game. Uh, that was so bad. Goodness gracious! So much Matt Canada pre-snap <laughs> motion. In that was like the other days. day too. Like LSU has no one to blame but themselves on that one. But yeah, there are a lot of classic guys like you were saying that would be even the running backs, man. Like even if you want to look at Ooh. like like Mike Dyer, man. Like put him in like the, today's spread offense. Um, Lattimore, some of those guys that were just, I mean, even even Mark Ingram, man, get him running like with some motion and some disguise. I, I think like r- the running game is benefiting from the spread offense just as much. My brother ran into Mike Dyer at a Chipotle in Louisville like a couple years after <laughs> the national championship. And I was like, how did that conversation go? What was he eating? I think he was a pretty nice guy though. Heard all about Michael Dyer that day. Percy Harvin, another one fascinates me. So much of his stuff with Urban was horizontal too. And Tebow obviously wasn't really a downfield thrower, but could he be used in this day and age like a Tyreek Hill? I don't know. I would I would just love to be able to see it. The irony is that probably the Spurrier era guys wouldn't really qualify for this because they had modern concepts. They were doing some five wide sets and the volume of which they threw the ball. You probably can't include them. Here's one that I, I would love. And I'll give you the exact reason why I love this. Eric Moulds. The former Mississippi State receiver, 6'2", 225, super quick, deep threat, could line him up all over the field. Who was his offensive coordinator back in the day? I'll give you 20 bucks if you can name who Eric Moulds' offensive coordinator at Mississippi State was. Eric Moulds' offensive coordinator? I don't got that one. Bruce Arians. Wow. Yeah. Throwback. That's that's why he'd be even better in today's offense because you know yeah they didn't necessarily weren't running shotgun like they you know like you would typically see of of a modern offense but still at the same time you know he would understand some of those concepts and he'd be able to move them all over the place it'd be great it'd be great to see him in an offense that actually threw the ball a ton the point is and the reason I bring up all this is because this trend isn't changing anytime soon the SEC is still loaded with more and more first round potential talent at the receiver position. It's beyond just, oh, Alabama had its two best offenses in school history. The SEC is never going to have an eight-year stretch with one first-round quarterback drafted. These four-year stretches with just two first-round receivers, those days are done. If you don't believe any of the numbers or the film, just look at the draft, and you'll see a totally different SEC in the 2020s. All right, let's talk about modern protection. Like, like how I phrase that? Is that a good way to phrase that? Modern protection? I'm Goodness intrigued. Gracious. Um, little peel behind the onion here. So Will and I were texting on Monday, and I'm like, I want to do something on protection in modern offenses. And you're like, cool, but let's not do that off the top. It was more or less like, hey, that's, that's a really dry subject. And Will, you're absolutely right. But, you know, in other words, challenge accepted. So let's see what we can do here. Mm-hmm. During the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl the other day, I'm doing the dishes and we've got the open concept living area. So try and picture this in your head if you're listening to this at home. But I can only hear the TV. It's on the same, I'm doing dishes on the same wall that our TV is on. So Lauren is on the couch. She grew up in Indianapolis. She's a lifelong Colts fan, Peyton Manning. She hates Tom Brady. Lauren knows enough about football to be able to have a casual conversation about it. She's also got the biggest brain of anyone I've ever met. Like one time I asked her, who's the best athlete to have never won a title? And instantly she's like, Boom, Dan Marino. And I'm like, I was floored. I'll never forget about that for whatever reason. She knows her stuff, but she's also not breaking down stunts and pulls and all that stuff. As she's watching this, she's watching the Super Bowl, she's like, they're murdering him every play. She's referring to, of course, the Bucks defense getting after Pat Mahomes. Anybody watching that game could have seen that. 
If you look at the next gen stats, they show that he was pressured on 56% of his dropbacks, 29 times compared to four for Tom Brady. It's the most a guy's ever been pressured in Super Bowl history. The first time that Pat Mahomes was held to single digit points, blah, blah, blah. You know all this by now. Chiefs, you, as you know, we're playing black backup tackles after the Eric Fisher injury. Hayden Winks throughout this tweet about the Chiefs offensive line that was just absurd. Like their left tackle was a guy who hadn't played tackle in four years. Their left guard's a seven rounder. Their center's a seventh rounder. Their right guard was a guy who was cut by Pittsburgh in November. Their right tackle's an undrafted free agent who played guard. Combine all that with Todd Bowles and that front seven, and Pat Mahomes had no chance. He's the best player on the planet. He can escape anything, and he was reduced to nothing. Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Andy Reid, Eric Bieniemy they were useless in that game. All of that was useless because Pat Mahomes couldn't be protected. Anyone who downplayed the whole Eric Fisher injury and said, but it's Mahomes, by the end of the night, they were eating their words. So why am I bringing this up? Talking about Super Bowl several days after the fact. I'm guilty of downplaying protection and what it means in this era of football because, you know, sometimes it feels like we're watching seven on seven. Like defenses just don't have a chance. It's all in the quarterback. And sometimes I laugh when a coach will say, like, it all starts up front. I'm like, sure, guy, tell me about that more often. Tell me about this fullback that you're lining up. Sure, I believe that. Two incredibly obvious cases of having protection versus not having it. We've seen what it adds to an offense, and we've seen what it takes away. The example I bring up is Texas A&M. Texas A&M fascinated me in 2020. I ripped them coming into the year. I think I said the stat about them leading for only seven minutes and 42 seconds against 300 minute, you know, in 300 minutes of competition against top 15 finishers. I think I said that thing like 95 times. You'd think I'd be able to say it a little bit easier by now, but I just can't. I hated, hated how much preseason love they got. I said, that stuff doesn't just change overnight. Where I was dead wrong was that offensive line play, even in this era, can help flip your team overnight. The Maroon Goons, they were the heart and soul of that turnaround. They started the same five dudes in the same five spots all year. They had four seniors, and they had a former five-star recruit, Kenyon Green. They had the fewest sacks per game allowed of any Power 5 team in 15 years. They had that stretch of 24 quarters without allowing a sack. Kellen Mond took 30-plus sacks in his first two years with Jimbo. I was like, this guy's just getting ripped the entire time. He took seven last year, and three of them came in the bowl game. The Aggies didn't get some massive influx of skill player talent, though obviously I love the way that those guys were used. I love Anaya Smith, Isaiah Spiller, and, and what we were able to see out of A-Chain in the bowl game. It was special. It was fun to watch. The offense was tweaked, but it wasn't overhauled. Jimbo said on signing day, this past signing day, he's, he's giddy talking about his new offensive lineman because he's seen what they can do. He said, when you can control the line of scrimmage in this league, it makes a world of difference because it allows your skill players to function. I realize that there's irony with Jimbo saying that because of how much the offensive line recruiting and development really fell apart during his time at Florida State. I'd argue that that's been a pretty big part of their on-field collapse post-Jimbo as well. It was absolutely the missing ingredient for AM before 2020. What did they do in 2020? They had their best finish in the AP poll in 81 years. They were one of three finalists for the Joe Moore Award. I reached out to Cole Kubelik, guy who is on the Joe Moore Award committee. Nobody knows offensive line play like Cole. We've had him on this podcast before. And so I asked him, I'm like, what's the biggest takeaway that we as football consumers need to understand about offensive line play after what we just watched in the Super Bowl? And it's simple. He said, you know, if you could win with fewer numbers up front, you're going to be hard to beat no matter what. And that goes two ways. You can apply it to the offensive line and say that if you want to, that if you can protect your quarterback with five offensive linemen and you can go five wide, obviously that makes you super, super dangerous. Or if your defense can get pressure on a quarterback with only sending three or four, you're golden. That's why Mike Leach's air raid didn't work in year one. Teams got pressure consistently sending three down linemen. Leach isn't bringing in extra protection. That's not what he was going to do. He's not changing who he is. I listened to longtime NFL center uh, Jeff Saturday. He was on the Ryan Rosilla podcast the other day. And he's like, the average person might think that Tampa blitzed all night. They didn't have to. That what That's what allowed for them to be able to double-team Tyreek Hill. Travis Kelsey can't get open. Devin White would just slip back into coverage or he would spy. By the way, how good is Devin White? That guy, I mean, shout out Daisy May. Rest in peace. That guy is unreal to watch over the course of a game, and his instincts are just second to none. The Chiefs also weren't going to change who they were. 
they absolutely should have gone to that 2019 LSU game plan against Auburn. We've talked about that before in this podcast. Kevin Steele goes to the 3-1-7. They're able to generate pressure up front with three down linemen because they've got a couple guys named Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson. And LSU's like, oh, well, we have Clyde Edwards-Alaire. We're going to run at this thing. And it worked. Kansas City had Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And they're like, nah, we're good. You <laughs> don't take the ball. Right? Right? They literally had the exact guy to be able to break that game plan. And it worked in the start of the second half. And they're like, nope, nope. Pat Mahomes, best player on the planet. we got to trust him. Nobody handles the blitz better than Pat Mahomes. The problem is that it wasn't blitzing. The ESPN Next Gen stats. Of the 29 pressures that Mahomes faced, 27 came when he faced four or fewer rushers. I reached out to a former SEC defensive line coach. I wanted to know two things from him. One, how do you know, how soon into a game are you able to realize that an offensive line needs extra help to block your basic front without blitzing? And then on the flip side, how soon into a game do you know when a defensive line isn't going to get pressure without bringing a little extra heat from the second level? That's a pretty basic thing to ask, but his answer kind of, it surprised me a little bit. So this coach, he's like, you know in the first few pass plays, that's gonna give you a really good indication. If your line can do it from the jump, why are you gonna bother sending extra pressure? I call this the anti-Todd Grantham approach. Then if the defense has the lead, it gets better as the course of the game you know, progresses, knowing that it's going to be rushing the passer, knowing they're, they're in those obvious passing situations. That makes sense. That's basic stuff that most of us already know. Sometimes though, what he said is, the strategy will be to bring that extra pressure early. You wanna rattle the quarterback. And then you dial it back because he thinks he's facing more pressure than he actually is. Everybody probably, maybe they're, not, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people probably remember Sam Darnold with an infamous quote now where I don't know why he was mic'd up for that Monday night game where he's like, I'm seeing ghosts out here. Yeah, I came away from all of this thinking. We can talk about modern offense until we're blue in the face. And yeah, quarterback play, route running, it's massive. You can protect all day. And if you don't have an accurate quarterback or guys who can get open, good luck winning. Still, even in the era of the spread, high octane passing offense, you're still not going to be able to do anything, even with superhero Pat Mahomes, if you can't protect a base front. It can be the difference between reaching historic highs like Texas A&M did in 2020, or falling to historic lows like Kansas City's very, very rough end to 2020. All right, let's go to my interview with Charles Huff. Super nice dude. Obviously, he's made a name for himself with some of the running backs that he's coached. Uh, Not a surprise to see him get that first FBS head coaching gig already with how hard he works. So let's go to the interview with Charles Huff. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first time guest. In fact, it is Marshall head coach Charles Huff. Charles, you're you're new to the job in the last few weeks here. So I'm not sure if you've been asked this before, but you spent your last three years in the SEC. Before that, you had the four years on James Franklin's staff at Penn State. I got to imagine when you were in the interview process at Marshall, they were blown away by your rise and all the dudes that you've helped develop at running back. But I also got to imagine that when you were asked to do a we are, you absolutely crushed it because that's probably all you heard in your four years at Happy Valley, right? Yeah, I I definitely have heard that one before. Um, There there was a lady at one of the events that I was, was at and she had had a few drinks and she was teaching me the we are and, and I wanted her what? to know that I had already uh, learned and respected the chant and how it worked in the stadium but but at that time I, I was going to let the uh, the libations entertain all of us so I let her teach me and then I actually asked her to do it two or three times so I could definitely get a hold of it but yeah you know being, being at Penn State obviously that that is something that uh, you know and I, and I don't you know, disrespect either either fan base and why, um, you know, why they chant that. But each fan base obviously has a um, direct connection to that chant and means a lot to the fans and the community. Um, so I, 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 that's one I will be able to get correct. I love it. I love it. You're you're basically a borderline millennial, and you have your first head coaching gig. I think you qualify for that. You're 37. I mean, that's that's still within the range. I I, I love your background. Walk on fullback, turn special special, like you're you're turned into the the starting center as a as a senior. 
Um, that's like basically the grittiest thing you can possibly be on the football field. You, you spent the last 15 years working your tail off as an assistant to, to get to this point. You getting this opportunity at Marshall didn't really come as much of a surprise because of how much you've thrived on the recruiting trail, developing backs. I don't imagine it was a surprise for your former boss, Nick Saban. For those of us who have never had to walk into Nick Saban's office and tell him that we're leaving for another job, can you explain what that's like? Um, <laughs> well, well, whenever you walk in the office, you you, you definitely walk in uh, with, with a sense of, of heightened awareness to the situation, to the tone, and to the mode. Uh, but, but Coach Saban is really good. Um, he, he's really good with, with handling um, the day-to-day operations, with handling the football program. And one thing he always says is, I can take good news, I can take bad news, but I can't take surprises. So throughout the whole process, I kept him very informed, um, I, you know, from the, from the first initial interest and from the first initial phone call um, to all, you know, along the way throughout the whole process. I kept him very informed. So when I was actually going in, you know, to tell him that, you know, they'd offered me the job and, and I was going to accept it, you know, he, 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 he honestly said I knew they would. Um, and, and he didn't say that in a, you know, where they already told me, I just didn't want to tell you. He, he said that in a, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, you've been working very diligently um, towards this goal. Um, he said, you've been able to keep your head down and, and do the task at hand while also um, improving your skill set and, and knowledge base to prepare you for this moment. He said, so I knew you would do a great job. And I knew, you know, at this point in time, Marshall is what, um, what you needed and what they needed from you. Um, he said, I'm happy for you. He said, I don't want to lose you. He said, you know, obviously there's anything I can do to keep you. He said, I, we, will, we will do it. He said, but anything you need, you know, ever, you know, while you're there and, and forever here on out, he said, I'm, I'll be willing to help. So it was actually one of those things that you learn, you know, how to handle different situations and, and, and handling that situation with keeping him informed from the beginning. I didn't just walk in and blindside him with a surprise, hey, I'm leaving. Um, I think that helped uh, smooth over the transition, if that makes sense. You, you helped Najee become, in my opinion, one of the best backs in SEC history. How did you celebrate the news that he was coming back for his senior year? Because if I were you, I, I probably would have been hugging a lot of strangers. Well, well, he and I had had a very long conversation, and, and he, he, you know, um, the University of Alabama infrastructure has a lot of uh, resources for their players, and, and and they gather a lot of information. One thing that uh, Coach Saban and myself, we we never try to talk a player into coming back or leaving. We we present the information, and we let their their families make the decision. So Ozzy and I had a discussion, and he he flat out asked me, you know, should I come back or should I go? And, and I told him, I said, the thing that you have to make a decision on is when you decide to come back, you decide to come back for everything. It's not just to come back to, quote, unquote, improve your draft status. It's to come back to be a part of this team. It's to help yeah. the younger players. It's to help the program. Um, and the byproduct of doing all that, you'll become a better player and you'll help your draft status. Um, I said, so if you decide to come back, you got to come back for all of them. And if you decide to leave, you got to leave knowing that, you know, there may be more left on the table for you to improve. Um, and when he decided to come back, you know, I gave him a big hug and I said, you know, now it's time to go to work. I said, you know, it's time to go to work as an individual, you know, preparing your skills, uh, improving your skills. And I said, it's time to go to work to be a better teammate, you know, to help this Alabama program. And, and I think that's what was probably more exciting for me other than the fact that he came back and he really improved, you know, his overall skill set as a player was the fact that he did it and um, he did it as a phenomenal teammate. And I think a lot of times in today's world, not just in sports, um, America in general, the world has become so individualized. What's best for me and what's going to help me that oftentimes the team aspect kind of gets lost. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, Najee put a lot of his personal goals and personal, um, you know, ideas aside, and he bought into the team. And a rising tide lifts all boats. And, and because he bought into the team, you know, obviously he raised his value and created a lot more value for him as well. You're the perfect person to settle this debate. After Najee's hurdle against Notre Dame, I said that the only hurdle I've ever seen that really compared to that was Saquon against Iowa 2017. You were there for both of those. Which one was more impressive? 
Well, I, I like to, uh, you know, I, I, I joked on Twitter that, you know, we, we work a drill that, that you know, I kind of taught both of them that, and, and that is totally <laughs> not it. Uh, it was totally a joke. So if anybody saw that, I'm not naive enough to think that I, I, I actually created either one of those. Um, I think that is a, a God-given ability, and their moms and dads did a lot to uh, to give them that, that talent. Um, you know, probably the one that, that's probably the, the most impressive for me, they're, they're probably both. One, because Najee's came at a point in time where it just kind of came out of the blue, um, and, and Saquon's came, you know, in crunch time on the last two-minute drive to go win the game. And that's just a testament to both of those guys as, as players and competitors that, you know, in the moment, you know, when a play needs to be made, um, they're, they're willing to make it, and, and, and they both have the athleticism to do it. And lucky enough, I just happen to be the guy standing on the sideline for both of them. <laughs> people, I think people forget that Saquon was committed to Rutgers back in the day. I, I've seen the story about James Franklin. He called him a year out from signing day and said he wasn't taking no for an answer. People also forget Saquon wasn't even a top 100 guy when he signed with Penn yeah. State. You were, you were obviously a major part of his recruitment and his development. Was there a moment when it clicked that he was about to become your first big-time home run recruit? Well, well, we didn't know. you know, And anybody on that staff will tell you that we didn't know what Saquon would be. We thought he was a good player. Actually, there was another running back in the state of Pennsylvania that was actually rated higher than him. And, actually had better stats and, and a profile than him. Um, so it, it was it was obviously a, a beautiful um, depiction of truly watching a young man, um, you know, transform and grow and mature in front of your eyes. You know, Saquon is probably a little bit of an anomaly where he got a lot better in his senior year after he had committed to us than he did in his junior year. Now recruiting is sped up so much that we're recruiting guys you know, sophomores and juniors, and we're making decisions and we're moving on. Um, Saquon really committed to us before his senior year, and really his senior year is where he really took off, um, you know, a late, late maturation process. So, you know, when we got him, we were like, yeah, we're good, we got him, but, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to have both of the top backs in the state. And, and, and actually, I think Saquon might have been the third top back in the state. Um, the, the moment that, that really, you know, everybody opened their eyes and said, wow, we got something special was probably Saquon's freshman camp. Uh, we were doing a drill, and this was early in camp. Maybe the first or second day we put pads on, and we were running some base offense and defense, and we ran just a base inside zone, and he jumped from the A gap to the C gap and went about 80 in a blink of an eye. And he wasn't even a starter then, and everybody just kind of was like, whoa. And the moment that I really knew he was going to be a great player and a great person was he came all the way back. He ran all the way back, first of all. And he asked me, he said, Coach, should I have just got vertical there? I, was, I said, well, maybe, but that was a pretty good move, too. Um, but but <laughs> that, that moment of, you know, you're a true freshman, you know, you're in your first padded practice at Penn State, and, you know, you, you make a cut and you go 80 and you don't come back and you're not patting your chest and kind of look at me and you're questioning, you know, how do I get better if I made the right decision? That let me know that he was going to be a kid that was very coachable and a kid that, regardless of his success, was always going to be trying to get better. There's really nobody in America who has a better track record working with running backs than you. I, I feel like we, that's safe to say at this point. You coach Saquon and Najee, but you also helped develop guys like Miles Sanders, Kylan Hill. You even helped coach C.J. Spiller that one year where he looked like the guy everyone thought he was going to be coming out of Clemson back when you were an assistant with the Bills. Everyone thinks that running backs are a dime a dozen and you can just replace them and they're so interchangeable. Tell me why that's not the case and why those guys became special. Well, I, I think you got to teach those guys, um, you know, how to evaluate themselves. You know, a lot of times running backs are evaluated by how many yards they get or how many touchdowns they score. And, and, and the details usually go out the window. You know, the footwork, you know, the eye control, the shoulder, you know, balance, um, the finish, you know, the, the, the extra hidden yardage. And, and when you really teach those guys how to evaluate themselves, then they don't look at how many yards they rush for, how many touchdowns they scored. They start saying, Coach, was my footwork right? Or they start saying to you, you know what, my eyes got, got out of the gap too early. You know, And even when they make a big run or a, a big play, which everybody in the stands is going to clap for, 
they could come back and say, you know what, I was probably a little bit too fast on my tempo or I probably, you know, my first step was too wide. And when you can really show them how to truly evaluate themselves from a running back perspective, not the fan or not the, the people that read the stats, when you can show them how to evaluate themselves, that's how they that's how they evaluate themselves. That's how they grade themselves. That's how they know, was I successful? Because as a running back, I don't care how good you are, if the guard doesn't block the three-tech and you got to make a move as soon as you get in the backfield, you're probably not going to be a really successful play. Now, obviously there's some natural talent and some instincts that come into play, but a lot of times their success is so predicated on a bunch of other people doing um, their job well and their job correctly that they can get lost in, well, I only had 90 yards, I only had 50 yards, I only scored one touchdown. Well, you can't evaluate that as success. Well, how was my footwork? How was my eye control? How was my shoulder balance? Those are the things that when you really get them to understand that that's how you evaluate success at the running back position, that's when you see their games really take off. You've been around some extremely notable head coaching personalities as an assistant the last seven-plus years. P.J. Fleck, James Franklin, Joe Moorhead, and Nick Saban, obviously. I'm sure you want to develop your own style as a head coach, and you're going to find that that exact voice of what you want it to be like. But which one of those guys do you find yourself kind of emulating the most right now as you're kind of beginning to figure all that stuff out? Well, I, I think I'm I'm kind of like a, a, a mixed bowl of fruit. Um, I think I think no different than your children or a combination, you know, of mom and dad. And there are some traits that they really stand out to look like mom, or some traits that they really stand out to look like dad. You know, I, I am probably a mix of all of them. You know, I'm, I'm probably have learned the importance of some facet of what's going to make me and make this Marshall program great from each person. You know, for Coach Saban, you know, I've learned you know the the, the consistency and approach is what's going to make your team really, really good. Not, hey, guys, we got to practice really hard because we're playing this school. Or, hey, guys, hey, we got these guys, so let's, you know, let's have ice cream and practice today. You know, I, that, so, so the thing is the consistency and approach. Every game, every practice is the same. Every week is the same. Everything stays the same. You don't have ebbs and flows in your program. But Coach Moorhead, he really taught me how to – stretch and confuse and to manipulate defenses offensively through scheme, through um, window dressing, without complicating it for the players. Um, Coach Franklin really taught me the, 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 the importance of being extremely detailed in every facet of the program. Clearly detailed, very clean, very organized, have a plan, be ready to adjust. And then P.J. Fleck probably taught me the most about just be yourself. Like, everybody's like, man, you, you have so much energy, you this is who I am. You know, I can't be anybody else. I can't be uh, very cut, very dry, very melatonin like Coach Saban. It's not me. I can't be over the top like PJ and, and, and have a, a mantra and, and, and be loud. I can't be that. i got to be myself. And that's what the players will respect. So when, when you put all of those together, you know, people say, well, this is your first head coaching job. Well, actually, the experiences that I have probably give me a leg up on some other first-time head coaching jobs or you know, head coaching positions because I've obviously had experience from some really, really good mentors who have taught me so much to prepare me for this moment. Better question might be if you've found what your look is going to be as a head coach. You know, Fleck, obviously, he's got the quarter zip with the, the shirt and tie look underneath. Saban's got the straw hat at practice. Matthew McConaughey had the tucked in green polo with khakis <laughs> with a white hat, and we, and we are Marshall. You know about that. What, what's the, yeah, the sideline yeah. look going to be for you? It's, it's got to well, be different I'm, I'm gonna because keep, I'm going to keep spotlight. that a surprise. I'm going to keep that a surprise <laughs> uh, for, for when the media guys get a chance to to, to, to see a little peak of, of spring practice. And then when you guys get a chance to see us on game day, uh, it's definitely going to be, once again, you know, pieces and, and, and thoughts. I think there are ways and rhymes to why everybody does something. Um, but there are going to be pieces of, of kind of everybody, but I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be myself because I'm going to be as comfortable as I can be. I don't mind wearing a shirt and tie. I don't mind wearing a straw hat. But if I'm doing that to be P.J. Fleck, then it doesn't make sense. If I'm wearing a straw hat to be Nick Saban, it doesn't make sense. So I'm going to be a mixture of, of everybody because I think that's what your experiences are. Um, but I'm going to be myself. You know, I know that I'm not you know, Nick Saban. I know that I'm not P.J. Fleck. Um, but I've learned so much from them that there's going to be a lot of influence um, on our program and on, on our, you know, our team. 
the quarter zip with the uh, the straw hat. That'd, that'd be a look. That'd be, that'd be a real look. <laughs> that'd be a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd be unique. The brand would sell itself. There's no no doubt about that whatsoever. Uh, last question here, because I know you got to run. I, I noticed that Marshall doesn't have any SEC teams on the schedule for the next eight years. Who, who do we have to talk to in order to make that happen? Well, see, now you're, you're, you're reaching way above my, my pay grade. They, they don't pay me to make those decisions. <laughs> I, I am really concentrating on how can I get our guys ready for the fourth quarter program? Uh, how can I get our guys um, a little bit more engaged and comfortable with their new coaches? Um, how can I generate a lot more energy and enthusiasm in this community? How can I continue to fundraise and pack, pack the stadium so our players run out of that tunnel and they feel the love for this community? Whoever they put on the schedule will take the same approach and we'll play one play at a time for 60 minutes. And, and at the end of it, if we've played our best, uh, regardless of the opponent across the field, we'll be where we need to be. I, I read between the lines there. I'll make some calls. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of that for you. <laughs> okay, you got it. You got it. You got it. Yeah, let me know. Let me know. Absolutely. Charles, I, I really appreciate the time. Wishing you best of luck with, with everything up there. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, man. Awesome, man. I appreciate you guys. And go hurt. Excellent. Take care. This edition of Figuring It Out, we are talking about something that I'm sure many people listening to this have experienced. Subject today is making friends as an adult. So I, I floated this out there on, on our Facebook group. If you are not already, Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group, make sure that you go like, become an active member of it. Can't recommend it enough. Okay. So this basic premise of making friends as an adult. Why is it so weird? Got a lot of people that responded, got a lot of great responses. My thing on this is that if you move away from home to a new area, work kind of dictates a lot. In Nebraska, we had a really tight group of like six friends turned into four couples, was originally three couples, then the two single people started dating, it was a whole thing. Uh, of our group of eight, six of us worked in the media though. So we'd see each other out all the time. None of us had kids yet, we're all between that like 24 to 30 age group. Wednesday night at Applebee's, man, let me tell you, that was the spot. Grand Island, Nebraska, shout out to it, it's still bumping. Uh, we actually went on a cruise with those people um, like after we moved to Orlando. And it was, but it was a rare group of friends that you meet, and I had other friends that I'd see in Nebraska regularly because I was in the community with my job, so it was pretty natural. But when I moved to Orlando, all that changed. Originally, I was like, great, bunch of people my age. We had our offices for SDS that were set up down here. And I'm 25 at the time with no kids, and my then fiance, now wife, Lauren, was back in Nebraska for another six months before she moved down here. And I had like two or three coworkers that I would hang out with pretty regularly. And the coworkers thing, like, it's a little bit of a roll of the dice. Like, if you hang out with them a ton, sometimes it can be a lot. But I don't know, like, a couple years later, so many of our full time employees, if you don't know the story of SDS, like, so many of our full time employees, we're moving away, but staying with the company. So we kind of got to the point where we're like, well, why do we have this like massive office space when there's only like a handful of us that are that are still based in the area? So we actually don't have our offices down here and we work remotely. I mean, it's still like so many of the same guys, but we're just spread across the country. I mean, Adam's out in California and, you know, Mike's in Tennessee and, you know, like we're, we're just all over the place. So I basically like looked around, I was like, I suddenly have a job where I don't interact with coworkers and, Lauren, my wife, basically runs a small PR, a small PR firm with four full full time employees, and we both looked at each other and we're like, uh, we probably need to get involved in some stuff down here and meet some people. And I've said this before, but like 2019, my weekday activities were off the chart at one point. Monday, bell choir practice at our church. Tuesday, softball league. Yeah, bell choir. Don't hate on it, kids. Wednesday, bowling league that we joined together. It was like a couples bowling league. My wife's actually really good at bowling. Thursday, New Hope for Kids. Friday, date night, or I was traveling for a game, and then all weekend was work stuff. So like, I also realized after getting involved in all that stuff, I'm basically a middle-aged man. No wonder I don't meet people my age. All my activities are that of a 55-year-old man. And I relate a lot. I don't know if, you, if you're in this too, like I know you've got friends, you're a little bit closer to home, so it's a little bit different, but I relate a lot to the Paul Rudd character and I love you, man. I yes. like a ton. I mean, that's, <laughs> I watch that movie now and I'm just like, I'm sitting there in the back, like preaching, the, preaching the gospel right now because it hits on so many things. Like you just don't think about, you don't think about when you're 18, 
19 years old. And it's not that we don't have any friends. Um, Lauren actually met some people through an organization that she volunteers for. One of them sold us our house uh, too. And these people are great. We love hanging out with them. They're awesome. I started playing playing golf with one of the guys and a couple of his buddies. I'm not even a big golfer, but I love going because it's social. We go to really nice courses and I'm always the worst one there and I have no problem with that, but it's just an afternoon to be able to take my mind off things. The problem is they live 45 minutes away and we see them like once every few months and it's, you can't just like call them up and be like, hey, you wanna go grab a beer? It's just not that easy. And when they all have young kids and we don't have any, that just kind of changes. So I wanna go into the first one that we have. Actually, you know what? Well, sorry, I, I, I spoke, I rambled, I rambled. I've thought about this a lot. You can tell I've had a lot built up. Making friends as an adult. In your opinion, why is it this thing that doesn't come so natural? What's like the biggest thing standing in the way of everybody just having like a group of 10, 15 people that they hang out with all the time? Well, it's, it's so you got your, your buddies from home, then you got your buddies from college, and this is like a third example. And so I think that's what it is, because everybody, mm -hmm. like almost everybody has those two groups of people, like within our age bracket, because they're making us all go to college, basically. Yep. <laughs> or like yep. me, like tech school, like some, some version of it. So it's like, I have my buddies from home that are near me right now. I went to college in Orlando. I have buddies over there and then I have now moved to Atlanta. So that's like city number three. And, but you see a lot of the people here are either from Atlanta or have college friends from right. Atlanta or like went to college here. I mean, so yeah, it's almost like you're never like my parents are a good example because they're a little bit older um, and they've met friends that they're very good friends with that they met later in life. But it's like our age group is so weird because you're always going to be a second priority if you're in our age group to other people's friends that they met in college or from their childhood if they're still near home. You see what I'm saying? So I totally, I totally relate to what you're saying where if you go to a new city, it's like, you know, like my thing is like I've always made friends at the gym and I've always, weirdly enough, made friends on Twitter. And like, that's my, cause that's what I do. I talk about sports and I go to the gym. And so it's like, I'm a very like, I, you know, uh, you probably know this about me. I'm only child like raised in the middle of the bayou. Like we didn't have neighbors. So I'm very cool being by myself. Um, and so for me, it's like, I'll hang out with people and like, I wanna, I wanna have a common interest and I don't just need to hang out with people to hang out with people. So my buddies from Twitter, like they're all you know, Pelicans fans. Uh, they're all like whatever. And then, you know, people from the gym, you know, we got that in common and I'm, you know, my life obviously revolves around sports. I'm not a big, like, let's just be friends and talk about TV guy. Like I've, I, I have to have that, you know, gotta have interests. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the key thing that that's, that, that needs to be part of this. If you're going to put yourself out there, the, the whole making friends at the gym thing, <laughs> I've had moments, I've had moments where I've said to myself, do I need to be more social at the gym? Because I am the person that. You know, I used to be big into the circuits and that's, I'm not taking, you know, five minutes in between breaks, like the power lifters over there who like the guy does one deadlift rep and then it's like, all right, man, are you going to, you're going to like take another 20 minutes off or are you going to like actually get the rep out here? Are you, you going to be able to, are you good to go? I'm not that guy. When I go to the gym for the most part, you know, I would go there and in non COVID times, I'm not really looking to, to talk to people because I always felt like if I was if I was being talked to that that was deviating from what I was trying to get done there and I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have the time to be able to just sit there for like two hours or something like that. I made friends with, I did like the personal training thing for a bit too. And I made friends with, with my trainer because that's a little bit different. I'm paying the guy, you know, I, I feel like he can listen to what I have to say right. sometimes. I don't really feel as bad about it. like, I, I mean, I, you buy somebody's time. It's a little bit different. The conversation's a little bit easier. There's recovery time and stuff. So like, I don't know, I've just never been that type of guy, even though I don't necessarily think it's bad. I just don't think it's as organic. And I've had instances where people have come up to me and it's like, try to maybe chat me up a little bit or something, or based on a t-shirt I'm wearing. But then I always think to myself, this guy like trying to, trying to like go like <laughs> grab a beer with me or like what's, what's, what's going on here? So that's not my way of saying, don't ever come up to me if you see me in the gym, but I don't know. I'm just, I, that's never where my focus is. Maybe that's my problem. If, if someone thinks that you're cool, it's an automatic red flag for you. You're just like, oh, why is this guy think I'm cool? What are you talking about? Where's, where's one time we had, um, what's a nice way to say this? Lauren and I had a meet cute at a Barnes and Noble. I kid you not. I kid you not. For those who don't know what a meet cute is, basically watch a romantic comedy, how the, the love interests meet, essentially. A few years ago, we were at Barnes and Noble. 
and I'm glancing through the sports books as I often do. And a guy that's about my age comes up to me in the same section and he tells me about this Arnold Schwarzenegger book. He's like, gotta read it. It's absolutely awesome. Super, super interesting. We end up talking about basketball. It's around, I think it's around March or pretty close to it. He's a Wisconsin grad. I'm an Indiana grad. We spent probably six to seven minutes just, just talking right there. As it turns out, his wife was also in the store and she ran into my wife and they started talking. They also hit it off. So about 10 minutes pass and then he just kind of says at the end of the conversation, he's like, would it be weird if I asked you for your number so we can maybe like, oh, you know, go out, watch some basketball, grab a beer, you know, whatever. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. Lauren and I walk away that night and we're like, wow, we just had a meet cute in a bookstore. We never heard from those people, ever, ever. You wait, once. so you said the phrase, we just had a meet cute in a bookstore. I mean, she might have said it. I might have nodded my head. I can't remember how it played out. But that is what a meet cute would be. We never heard from them, though. We never yeah. heard. Ghosted and at I the was, Barnes & Noble, bro. Oh, gosh. I was devastated. It was brutal. would have been great. Making friends as an adult, it's just hard. you got to put yourself out there, like you say. But um, I'm interested to see what so many people in our Facebook group who have responded to this uh, said because we've got a lot of different opinions on this. Michael Dark says... It's even more difficult making friends after you have kids. I can't stand the parents of my boy's friends. I've been telling myself the opposite for a while, so that's <laughs> not good. That is not a good sign. Michael might be in a unique spot. Maybe it just kind of depends, roll the dice, but that's what I've been telling myself is this, if, if we have kids, then you're automatically in those situations. It's, it's not college, like you're totally forced into those spots, but... You know, you go to swim practice, you go to, you know, dance recital, school play, whatever it is, you're forced into those spots with people that are dealing with some of the same stuff that you are. I would tend to think it would be easier. That makes me feel not as good. Uh, Jesse Folly, she says, no advice, but I can't wait to hear what other people say. Moved to a new city, Birmingham, during a pandemic, and I'm desperate to make new friends. If you're in the Facebook group, give Jesse a shout out. Be like, hey. Let's go, you know, hang out, socially distance, go hang out outside. Weather's going to be getting nice soon. Oh, one thing really quick. One thing really quick. Um, I forgot about this. But whenever you go to look at a house, like look kind of around and see if you have things in common with people. I mm. love my neighbors at my new house. My neighbor like right there is a Florida fan, like the biggest Florida fan in the world. We talk about college football almost every other day. Like he is the man. And so like, yeah, like that's another thing. Like talking about kids and like your community is like, if I have like, I love everyone around me. So if I just like go for a walk, I can like say what's up to some people. We can get like a cookout going. That's a very easy way to make friends as well. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Funny you should mention that because Dustin Harris says, I've lived here for 12 years and don't even know my neighbors. So I don't have any friends to hang or talk with. That's why I joined this group. At least you people know about football. Dustin, it's going to be all right, man. It's going to be all right. Maybe, maybe just ask your neighbor, wants to watch a game or, you know, you never know. You're never going to know unless you try. And that's, that's what I've come to to realize, I have a next door neighbor who we, we started chatting for like, I don't know, like 20 minutes. We ended up talking about his device that he has to be able to clean up his leaves, which is just next level type of stuff that I'm super, <laughs> super jealous of. Didn't end up talking about sports, but I kind of like that because I feel like so many times in this profession, as soon as I say what I do, that I always immediately get the feedback. And sometimes it's totally fine and I don't mind it at all. Like we have friends who are, you know, the friends that we see every couple months or so, they're Tennessee grads. And so when I go there, you know, usually Tennessee has done something ridiculous by that point that we can talk about <laughs> that I know I'm going to be able to spend 15, 20 minutes on. So like, I don't mind that at all, but it's sometimes when it's, you know, it can be a little bit repetitive depending on who you're talking about, if it's a neighbor. Um, Matthew oh. Sadro, Go ahead, oh, Will. Sorry. Uh, Brittany's move is make people brownies, which is a vet move because you just like knock on their door, give them some brownies, and they have to like you. Is it, does it have to be brownies? I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing brownies, but does that <laughs> send a sign to your neighbors? No, it's not like a, it's not like a, the village's situation where there's a code word. It's like, it's like she just Goodness likes to make brownies. Man. So she, so she just like brings people brownies and then they're nice to us is kind of how that works. Lauren just made these. Um, they're called, I'll say it, they're called slutty brownies. They have Those are awesome. brownies on the bottom, they've got the Oreo in the middle, and they've got cookie on top. You take one bite of that and you're basically, you're good on dessert for the week. 
Uh, brownie salt. Good idea. Haven't tried that. That would definitely be like the friendly thing to do. Matthew Sadro, he says, go to the golf course on a Saturday morning alone and join a group of three as their fourth until you find a gr- good group of guys. I think a lot of people will hear that and think to themselves, that's super weird. Why would you do that alone? Just last night, I was having a conversation with um, Lauren's boss's wife saying that it's we- it'd be weird to go to the bowling alley by yourself. I used to go to the bowling alley by myself a lot. Like a lot, because when we got into a league, we would have two free games during the week. So I'm like, all right, I got an hour to kill. I'll go to the bowling alley. And then I basically flipped into, I'm at the gym mode. I'm here to get better. I'm here to improve. <laughs> Don't talk Mama to me. mentality at the, at the lanes. It's just getting after it, you know? You, just, you gotta work on that. You gotta work on the curb. Man, I haven't bowled in, in a solid year. But that's my way of saying, I actually, I don't hate that idea at all. I, I've never done that personally, where I've just had an entire Saturday to be able to kill. And time is part of this too, right? I mean, if you have a Saturday to kill, that's totally different. I, I think that's a, a fantastic idea. Golf is such a great social setting. And, and that's what I've come to realize. And that's why I never, t- I rarely, rarely turn down a chance to play golf. Conversation's so light. It's so easy. Everybody has something to kind of laugh at. It's not forced where you're like sitting at a table and you got to look at each other across from each other and there can be those awkward moments. You don't have to get into anything that you don't want to. You're standing around one area for a few minutes and then everybody kind of goes their separate ways and then they come back. It's like the perfect social ground to be able to have a conversation that doesn't go crazy in depth, but goes just to that point where you can have a laugh or two and feel like you actually were social. Golf, get after it kids. Um, Don't go into my Mamba mentality mode when it comes to that. I don't do that when I golf, I promise. Dex Kendall, he says, this is a good answer. This is how it usually works for me. I go to a get together orchestrated by my wife and or her friends. We all have drinks together and I make friends with the male counterparts. It usually takes a few functions to develop a connection strong enough to where we connect, like exchanging numbers, doing that. And Dex, you're absolutely right. He says, the movie I Love You Man is also a great example of the struggles of making friends as adults. Yes, spot on. Can't cannot agree with that more. Uh, David Tucker. This is also an important thing I think that that all of us need to be reminded of. But just kind of driving this point home. Honestly, it comes down to finding common ground. Join an organized group pertaining to your interests: hunting, reading, church, frisbee golf, classic cars, etc. That will give you a jumping off point. Will, have you ever joined an organization like that where not work related or anything, but you've just said, "I like this thing." I'm going to go join this group in my area and just kind of see what it leads to. So I'm going to do that after COVID. Um, I want to like start volunteering, maybe like, you know, uh, girls and boys club or like just some, something where I can like give back to the community. Um, I'm like, I'm weird about like, like following up with things. So I feel like if I do something like that, I'm going to be much better at like, like sticking with it because for a good reason. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very like, if I'm not working, cause you know how it goes. We work all the time. If I'm not working, I am like, just watching TV, chilling. So I need to get out of the house more, but COVID, hard to do that, so. And that's part of it too, if you're in a serious relationship or something like that, you have to legit make an effort when it comes to keeping friends. I have to legit make an effort with my friends from home all the time, because if you're in a serious relationship, you get social interaction over the course of a day, so it doesn't necessarily register to your brain of, oh, I should go hang out with some people because you're Chances are, if you if you live with your significant other, if you're married, whatever it is, you're already interacting with them. So you don't necessarily have that switch go off. Whereas if you're living alone, it's totally different in that regard. And you say to yourself, "Yeah, I'd like to be able to see some people today. That'd be that'd be a good thing." And with p- people working from home, you know, if you're not seeing coworkers or something like that, that definitely can be something you know that just y- you think about, and then you know you have to get out there and do. Um, Jeff Jensen, he says, find a common thing to talk about, obviously not politics or religion, and that should be the stepping stone for friendship. Sports is a big one for me. I spent 20 minutes talking about football to a guy who hadn't watched a down in his life. I don't recommend that. (laughs) Jeff, 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 Jeff. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Because I hate when I realize that I'm that guy. And... I hate the way that I make other people feel when they are being that guy. Because there is nothing worse than being in a conversation that you can't get out of. Like, 
we're having a conversation right now, but you can stop, you can hit the pause button and you can stop at any given time. I don't recommend doing that. Definitely listen to the end, rate, subscribe, review, do all those things. But it's different when you're having that conversation and you're just locking them into that. They're nodding politely. Don't be that guy, man. Not everybody wants to know about the Georgia backfield or the 2022 commit that really has a lot of potential and could be shades of Todd Gurley. Nobody really wants to go down that road unless they're asking you questions about it. That's the big thing to remember. Kobe Black, he says, I moved to Arizona about two years ago, and up to that point, I don't think I had ever been west of the Mississippi River. I never realized how hard it is to make new friends, especially since I worked two jobs all week, sick brag, and then pretty much stuck at home due to COVID during the weekends. Trust me when I tell you, Southern hospitality is a real thing. Good advice, good advice. And Southern hospitality is a real thing. That is true. You just gotta make the effort, gotta make the efforts. Um, let's see, we've got a couple more, a couple more. I like this one from Brittany. I'm gonna, Brittany, I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher your last name. Brittany Ferco? Ferco. <laughs> That's my girlfriend. Uh <laughs> Why did I not know Brittany's last name? It's, it's a very unique last name. And oh yeah, that is her picture. All right, the pictures are really small on Facebook. I'm sorry, Brittany, that was mean, that was really mean. I love this answer though, she's absolutely right. I know I'm late to the game, but I personally think it's hard to make friends as a young adult for two reasons. She says, one, the lack of free time is hard. If you aren't able to find friends through online or your nine to five, then you're pretty limited. And also I think a lot of people find themselves competing with one another. If they feel inadequate or threatened, then they usually don't want to be friends. That limits the possibility of pursuing a friendship that will be lifelong. All right, how do you say your last name again? Furco. Furco, Furco. How did I not know this? Well, this is see this. We got to be tighter. We got to be able to, to text about this stuff constantly. You know, I, I need to every text that you include Brittany in from now on. I need full name to be able to get that into my brain. All right, we good on that? Mm -hmm. We good? She's right because the lack of free time is the difference between when you're if you're 22 or 23 or even if you're still in college, whatever it is, you fill all your free time with social stuff. And if you have a job where, uh, in this business, we work on the weekends for at least four months out of the year and then random stuff will come up throughout it, I think it is very hard to tell yourself, I would rather go out and do something social than, I mean, as the kids say, Netflix and chill. That, I realize, means some other <laughs> things as well. I'm not getting into that. But, you know, you know, do what you want to do in your own home. I'm not going to sit here and police you. But I think that's become more of a difficult thing than we realize in this day and age. And there are so many times when, you know, there's there's also millennial guilt when I feel like I should be working if I ever wanna take a half hour to watch a TV show. We just blaze through Shit's Creek. We have like two episodes left right I love now. that show, yep. Oh God, it's so good, it's so good. But there are times when I'm thinking to myself as we're, you know, it's even when it's like 9, 9.30 at night, I'm thinking to myself, should I be working or, like, should I be texting my friends from back home to be able to develop this relationship? Is, is millennial guilt something that people don't talk about enough or don't really realize is there? Because I feel like it's, I feel like it's there all the time. Do you get that sense? Yeah, no, and especially in like a sports field. And like, that, that's a very good point. And everyone in the group that's been talking about this is like watching football. It's like, if someone's into like, <laughs> if someone's into watching football, that may actually make it harder to be friends with them because you know, like, you don't want to have people over to watch football with you if you're working. Like you're just not going to be fun to be around because you're going to be breaking down offensive lines because you want to take your job seriously. And if you get like, you know, someone who's like crazy about football and they're going to be like, all right, dude, like calm down. So it's right. like, yeah, no, that's, that's the downside, especially of turning something that you love into a career is that like, yeah, I mean, you're busy on the weekends and, and I'm exactly the same way as so you know me, I have three or four jobs and it's like, you know, so no, I'm, I'm with you. And I think that that's what we're kind of realizing here is like, yeah, maybe like post COVID that's the resolution is just get out, join some random, you know, clubs and uh, get the, get the friendships going, man. Get the friendships going. We'll end with this one from Jay Woody, uh, common interest. People love to talk about themselves. Yeah, they do. If you can find something about them that interests you, you have mm -hmm. a friend, period. If every time we talk, I'm letting you talk about you, but in a way that I'm genuinely interested in, we can't help but become friends. It can be sports, kids, yard work, doesn't matter. Big mow the lawn guy. Big, big on that, especially <laughs> now that I have one to mow. If we're both interested and enjoy talking about it, we'll become friends. And if you let the other person lead the conversation a lot, you'll become besties. Great advice, Jay. 
man, the myth, the legend, Jay Woody. Hopefully we provided some sort of advice. If you're in one of those situations where you're just like, yeah, I'm an adult that's struggling to make friends. I think that's perfectly normal, perfectly normal. I think there are people from a variety of walks of life that would agree with you that it's it's difficult. And obviously during a pandemic, yeah, not exactly setting up for a bunch of social opportunities in the same sort of way, but hopefully we're gonna be getting back to some normal times soon. All right, next week, We've got, I'm so excited about this. First time guests, big time guests, big, big time guests. Really looking forward to being able to um, introduce everybody to this person who um, I, I think we're the last year, that's a little hint for you. Over the last year, I think we've learned a little bit about, but I think we're gonna learn even more about him after next week's episode. We're overdue for a little bit of hoops talk with Adam Spencer too. He's been crushing it. If you haven't watched the starting five videos, read all of Adam's stuff on SDS, Adam is all over all things basketball. Uh, make sure that you follow all of his stuff. It's really, really good, especially right now where the SEC is just all over the place with basketball. Please, please, please leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter as well. Five-star reviews, man, those those make our day. They mean a lot. They, they show our advertisers, hey, you know, this this podcast is is successful. It's working out. So please, if you have the time, you haven't done that before, uh, go do that, or go tell a friend to do that um, as well. So, um, Will, I don't really have anything that I want to close with, other than I other than to say, we're friends. I'm glad we're friends, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, guys.